Hey everybody, welcome, and we are glad you're here. We're glad we're here. We're glad all to be here uh, week to week. We, we just never know, especially as Anna said, here in California, with everything that's going on. I love the way Lindsay put it, you know, what's next, right? What exactly could happen next? Uh, we hate to cancel our, uh, our gathering in the park tonight. We could pray for a nice breeze to blow out the smoke, but the same breeze that blows the smoke away blows the fire around uh, and helps it to spread. So I think we could pray for rain. That's probably safe. Uh, the Lord did promise he would never flood the earth again and destroy it by water. So we're safe to pray for rain. Uh, but in 2020, who knows what that could bring? Probably uh, a hurricane, which would put out the fires. But um, who even knows at this point? So anyway, um, many of you know, uh, my, fa my family does live up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So we have been evacuated and we're currently staying uh, with my parents uh, who live uh, right here uh, in the Silicon Valley. So we're certainly thankful for the Lord's provision. We're thankful for my parents. Uh, you can pray for them because my family uh, leaves a pretty big footprint with the six of us uh, and two dogs and two guinea pigs, which of course we had to bring along, but God is faithful and he is providing. And uh, I think that my mom and dad wanted more time with their grandkids and boy, they're uh, getting it at this point. So um, just so glad, so thankful for uh, this opportunity to be together. Even though we don't see each other, uh, we know that you're there and uh, just thankful that we have the word of God as just a consistent part of our lives uh, because as Lindsay said, uh, Jesus doesn't change. He doesn't change at all. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. Uh, and our mission doesn't change. The work that he's doing in us doesn't change. None of that is affected by anything that's going on uh, around us. And so we want to stay focused on that. Uh, so with that said, uh, we're going to turn this morning to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to continue just to press on through this uh, wonderful account. Um, you know, we're going to look this morning at chapter 19, the first seven verses. And you remember that we looked last week at what was kind of this interesting little section in our study through this incredible book. And it was nestled very nicely between these two epic events in the course of church history, between the account of the finishing up of Paul's second missionary journey, and then his account at Ephesus, which really kicks off in earnest his third missionary journey. Um, and we see that the Holy Spirit in the kind of the balance of chapter 18, and then into the beginning with the first few verses, which we're going to look at today in chapter 19, the Holy Spirit does this kind of an interesting thing in that he takes this kind of a pause it's this sort of a pause in that rapid fire description of the narrative as all of these churches are being established and we're seeing the gospel literally going out uh, across the known world. But we've taken kind of this little pause and there's this parenthesis uh, for us. We talked about last week just to take a moment and to look at a couple of specific experiences that happened amongst just a handful of individuals, um, but are so important because they, uh, you know, they, they give us some very important lessons. They highlight some essential elements, we said, 
um, that apply very strongly to each one of our lives as Christians. And the first one of those we looked at last week in the example of a man named Apollos, where we looked at his story that reveals our most essential attribute as believers. Uh, and that was Apollo's uh, incredible humility, which led to this wonderful teachability that he had. We talked about the fact that that's really what enabled the Lord to use him greatly in the, in the record and in the work and the history of the church. This morning, we're going to look at a second and very likely connected story as the Apostle Paul has this experience with just this handful of early Ephesian disciples. And I think their story is really going to highlight for us what is our most essential influence in our lives. So let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless and really open up the scriptures uh, to our hearts this morning. So. Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the way that you teach us, Lord, the way that you illuminate your scriptures for us. Father, we do pray for the teaching ministry of your spirit to be manifest here today. Lord, we pray for hearts that are open to those things that he would teach each one of us individually, Lord, the things that you have to share with us uh, as a church body collectively, Lord, and as the body of Christ uh, corporately and universally. So, Father, we just, uh, we just dedicate this time to you. Lord, we entrust it to you, and we ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, remember, we loved the story of this guy named Apollos. He arrived in Ephesus. We saw him teaching there in the synagogue. And right away, we, we talked about the fact that you could sense that Apollos was a very, very gifted and a talented, and we could say an advantaged man. Remember, the Spirit gave us this wonderful description of him. If you look just above in, in uh, verse 24 of chapter 18, it said that he was born at Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. Uh, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit that he spoke and he taught accurately the things of the Lord. So we saw that he was this remarkable man. He came from this remarkable city, but that he also had an incomplete message. Look there at the end of verse 25, it said that he knew only the baptism of John. So his message was missing some glaring points, right? He only had about half of the gospel. He knew that John had called the people to repentance in preparation for the Messiah to come. But he likely wasn't aware that Messiah had come in the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't know about the saving work of Jesus on the cross until we saw in verse 26 that it was explained to him more accurately by our two unassuming servants, right? Our husband and wife tent making team. There was Aquila and Priscilla. And we saw that to his credit, right, the foundation of his success, we know that the mighty Apollos, he received 
their correction. He really took in their instruction. And he, we saw that humility and that hunger for the things of the Lord and the truth of the Lord. And then we saw Apollos went on to travel to Corinth, where he would just become a pillar of the church there. So now that's exactly where we pick up, right? Right where we left off at the beginning of chapter 19 here, we see Paul finally arriving at Ephesus. Look at verse 1. It says that, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So with Apollos now off the scene, we have Paul arriving on the scene from that kind of first leg on this third journey. We remember when he left Antioch of Syria, he had set out with this heart to visit all of those churches that he had established on his first journey, the very same churches that he visited at the beginning of his second journey. Remember there in Derbe and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch, all of those churches in those regions of Galatia and Phrygia. Remember, his heart was to strengthen and to equip and to encourage those who had already received the gospel so that they could then go out and take that very same beautiful gospel out from there and really engage in that work of the Great Commission ministry. Paul's heart was not just to create converts, but it was really to make disciples just as Jesus told us to do. And all the while, so now we've got Paul kind of working his way along that inland route right over these mountainous regions until he arrives finally this time coming from the east, he arrives there in Ephesus, which was right there on the western coast of Asia Minor, what we would today call Turkey. And we remember that he had a kind of a brief stop there before on his way back toward Jerusalem, back in chapter 18, at the end of that second journey. And we remember he couldn't stay long, but he made this promise to come back and to minister again. In Acts 18.21, he said, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. So at this point, God was willing, and he's arriving here at what would be now this kind of a three-year base of operations for all of his third missionary journey here in commercial cosmopolitan Ephesus, right? It was this huge marketplace. We talked about it's a gateway there between the continent of Europe and the continent of Asia Minor. It was another very strategically located hub from which the gospel message would spread. I almost said like wildfire, but that's maybe it would. It would spread like wildfire. Even before, though, that we read about his exciting efforts here in Ephesus, we're going to see he's introduced to this kind of a small group of individuals. And we're going to see he has kind of this puzzling yet incredibly important exchange with them. Again, in verse 1, it said that Paul came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, 
there's a lot that we don't know about this meeting. We don't know about these men. There's, there's a lot that the Spirit, writing through Luke, does not tell us. We're not exactly sure where Paul met them, but what we do see is that when he did, Paul wasn't exactly sure what to make of these guys. Now, we don't necessarily have any indication that it was Paul's usual practice to ask people when he first met them if they'd received the Holy Spirit when they believed. But it's such an important, and it must have been a very appropriate question for him to ask this group of men. Apparently, there was something about these disciples that prompted this kind of a question from Paul. You know, they somehow professed to be students, right? They were disciples. They were learners, both of Jesus and of the Christian faith. But their lives gave an indication that something was lacking. And not only, I think, do we see did their lives give this kind of an indication, but their answer confirmed Paul's concern. They didn't know anything at all about the Holy Spirit. And so his question, their answer, was a crucial one because the Bible teaches very clearly that it's the witness of the Spirit in someone's life that's the one indispensable proof that a person is truly born again. In Romans chapter 8, it says that you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And then down in verse 16 of Romans 8, it says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. John wrote in 1 John 5 that he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. So it's the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that confirms to us that we belong to Jesus. And further, Paul tells us that we receive that Holy Spirit right when we believe on Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says that in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And yet there's something here that isn't adding up because keep in mind, our text tells us that this group of Ephesian believers that Paul encountered as he arrived into town, our text tells us that they were disciples, right? They were disciplined ones. They were seeking after the Lord. They were studying about the Lord. They were striving for the Lord, but there was something significant missing. And so too, you know, maybe you know people that you work with, maybe people even in a, a Bible study group who are devoted to the Lord and they're very disciplined in their walk, but there's no light in their lives, right? There's no sparkle in their eyes. There's, there is about them kind of a, a lack of life. There's a shortage of excitement. There's an absence of enthusiasm for the Lord. And we can imagine that to those same people, Paul would probably ask this very same question that he asked here of these Ephesian believers, have you guys received the Holy Spirit? 
And then he might even ask a follow-up question like we see him ask next of these same guys in verse 3 that it says that he said to them, into what then were you baptized? He says, look, if you don't know about the Holy Spirit, if, if you're not immersed in him, then let's start with what you do know. Let's find out where it is that you are on your journey of faith. He says, into what were you baptized? And so they said, into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now, even before we get to what Paul said, I have to point out that I just love the way that Paul said it. You know, the Apostle Paul was a gifted teacher. He was a wonderful discipler. And what he did is he always tried to take people from wherever it is that they were, and he tried to move to work with them to bring them forward from there. And he did it patiently yet persistently. He did it graciously yet so truthfully, right? Always attacking the problem, not attacking the person. And here we see that he rooted out the issue. And what's interesting is that we find out that these men seem to be in precisely the very same position as we found that Apollos was in our time together last time, right? They'd only had a basic understanding about Jesus, the Messiah, and his ministry. They only knew of Jesus what could be learned through John the Baptist. They knew they needed to be ready through repentance to receive the Messiah, but they didn't actually seem to understand that Messiah had indeed come. They hadn't heard perhaps, of the way that they needed to trust in his very specific work on the cross on their behalf. And they were in exactly the same place as Apollos was before Aquila and Priscilla explained the way of God to him more accurately. And what's interesting, of course, is that most likely they were there in that place because they probably were early converts of Apollos before he had come to that fuller understanding of the gospel. And when he had come to a full faith in Jesus, he hadn't been able to share that with them because he hadn't been able to find them in this huge city of 300,000 people. And yet what I love again is how faithful that we see that the Lord is. God had been so faithful to these men that he first brought the eloquent, the fervent Apollos to bring them along even part of the way. And now that these guys might just happen to bump into the Apostle Paul, right, just to ensure that they'd be brought along even further in their developing faith. Now, of course, we need to pause this morning and answer the question that most all people ask about this passage. And that is, were these men actually saved before they met Paul here? Some would propose that they were not. Now, if indeed they did not have the Spirit even dwelling in them, that would be proof 
that they had never truly been born again. Yet the problem in this is that they're called disciples, right? Which is almost always a term that was used to refer to Christians, genuine followers of the Lord Jesus. Now, those who would propose that they were saved would point out that the word there believed back in verse 2, when Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's the very same believe that Jesus used when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 in verse 16, where he said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? So Paul seems by his question to indicate that these men had done that, that they had believed in that saving way. And so these students of scriptures would say that these men were saved, that they did have the spirit dwelling in them, that the spirit had gone from that place of being with them, which is that first relationship with the spirit that an individual can have. It's that Greek preposition para, where we get our word parallel. It means alongside of them, the way that the Holy Spirit is alongside of, or he's with all unbelievers, right? With the world, sort of like what we would call their conscience. That they, the Holy Spirit had gone from that place of being with them to now being in them, right? That second relationship that the Holy Spirit can have with someone where he comes, as those scriptures we saw earlier describe, to live in them, right? To regenerate them. It's the Greek preposition en, right? From which we get our word in. So they would say that these men had this, but what they lacked was that fullness or that overflow, call it the baptism, if you will, of the Spirit, that upon relationship, right? That third relationship that the scriptures describe that we can have with the Holy Spirit when he comes upon us. It's the Greek word epi, which means upon. It's that Spirit coming and falling afresh and empowering and enabling and equipping and influencing us. So that that's what they lacked. What they lacked is the thing that we've seen over and over in the pages of this entire book of Acts. That what they lacked was precisely what Jesus himself had promised at the beginning of the book of Acts, just before he ascended in Acts 1.8, when he said, but you shall receive power, right? Dunamis, dynamite, power. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, right? Epi you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth that they lacked that. They lacked that dunamis, dynamite power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them and overwhelming their lives. So we have to ask, which one is it, right? Were they saved, but lacking the power and simply missing out on everything the Lord had for them? Or were they still not saved at all? 
Were they lacking the spirit in their lives at all? Well, I can tell you without any hesitation that we can absolutely not be sure what the answer is. I happen to believe it's probably option one, that they were saved, but they needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I can also absolutely tell you that I don't think that it matters all that much, and here's why. Because whatever exactly the question was, what we're going to see is that the answer to the question was absolutely the same, right? Watch, Paul had explained to them what it was they were missing. He talked to them about where it was that their experience and their faith fell short. And now he's going to show them that what they needed was power from heaven. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says that when they heard this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues, and they prophesied, just as we've seen happen throughout this book. So whatever the particulars of their problem were, notice that the answer was the Holy Spirit coming upon them. If they had been believers before, then what they needed was the Holy Spirit. If they hadn't been believers at all, then what they needed was the Holy Spirit. And I almost love this because I actually wonder if one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit doesn't specifically tell us which it was, which place these disciples were, what it was that they were lacking. One of the reasons perhaps that he wasn't more crystal clear here, and we know he certainly could have been, but it's almost as though he isn't on purpose so that we wouldn't overly narrow the focus and somehow exclude ourselves from the real point that this passage is trying to make. I think that he keeps it broad so that we can see the crystal application for each and every one of us is that we, you guessed it, we need the Holy Spirit. So wherever it is that you are with the Lord, I can promise you that you need more of the Lord, and that comes with more of the Holy Spirit. If you don't yet have him, then you need to believe and receive. And if you do already have him, then you need to believe and receive that you'll receive even more of him. Don't you love the way the Lord keeps it so simple for those of us who aren't that awfully bright? See, rather than get kind of mired down in the murky details, I think there's such a great lesson here for us in this experience that Paul had with these people because there's a very probing question I think that we need to ask ourselves and really consider within ourselves. And that is, if someone were to meet us and to look at our lives as believers in Jesus, would they notice an obvious absence of the person and the power of the Holy Spirit? Would they sense, as Paul did here, that there was something missing from our own Christian witness? I love the way you may have heard it put 
It says, if you were put on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Right. Think of it in today's culture, right? If somebody were to deep dive into your social media presence or into your online persona, if they were to deep dive into our real life behavior and our character and the way that we treat others and the way that we do or don't love and really minister to them, would people see, like Paul saw here, would they see that there was a lack of of spiritual power in our lives. Maybe they'd even see the presence of continual, habitual sin. Maybe they'd see a lack of a a desire for holiness. Maybe they would see a lack of love for the word of God or for the people of God and for the worship of God. And the truth is that wherever we are, You know, if we had some sort of a sliding scale on any of these things or in any one of these areas, wherever we are in our estimation of ourselves, the fact is that God has more for each and every one of us. And the question I think really when we get to the heart of it, if we kind of reframe the question a little bit, the question isn't really how much of the Holy Spirit do we have But the better question is how much of us does he have? How much of our lives, how much of our own will have we yielded to his control? How much have we really put these things under his holy influence? And of course, Spurgeon said it so well. He said, have ye then received the Spirit since you believed? Beloved, are you now receiving the Spirit? Are you living under his divine influence? Are you filled with his power? Put the question personally. I am afraid some professors will have to admit that they hardly know whether there be any Holy Ghost. And others will have to confess that though they have enjoyed a little of his saving work, yet they do not know much of his ennobling and sanctifying influence. God always wants us to go deeper. He always has more for us. After all, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, it says that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we are each in this process of being transformed a little bit each day to be more and more just like Jesus. And you can bet that we need to press into the Lord deeper and deeper in order for that to actually happen. We saw that same thing last week in Apollos, expressed in that hunger, that desire that he had to keep learning and to keep growing. And then we see it here this week in this deficiency that these disciples had and the deep need that they had for this kind of a spiritual power. And I think the truth is, for us as believers, we all have this tendency, we tend to sip where we could be drinking deeply, 
right? We tend to drink deeply where we could be wading in fully, and we wade in where we could plunge in and swim. And most of us need to be encouraged to go deeper and to really plunge further into the things of the Holy Spirit, right? To immerse ourselves. That's what baptize means. Because that's where the Christian life is. That's where the power is to live this kind of a life. Remember when Paul wrote to the Galatians, and no doubt he'd just been there, he'd been ministering these very things to them just now. But in Galatians chapter 2, in verse 20, Paul writes this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, this is that real difference between us living for Jesus and him living through us. I think about it. Living for Jesus, that sounds awfully good. And yet it has this kind of a sense of us living from the outside in. Like we're going to be the ones living, but we're going to do it in a way that honors him in the things we do and that honors him in the things we say. And that's the way that so many tend to look at or even enter into their Christianity. It's kind of like we've been given this new moral code, this new set of rules and regulations. We've got this new standard, and now we just need to buckle down and to live up to that new kind of heightened ideal. But that is not at all what was intended by God for us. Not at all. Instead, the intent is that we allow Jesus to live his life through us. That's an entirely different paradigm, isn't it? It's a whole different approach. Because by doing that, now we really are living from the inside out. Now we're allowing that love that's within us, which is Jesus. We're allowing that joy that's within us, with, which is Jesus. And we're just allowing all of that to then pour out of us and into the world. It's that life of Jesus overflowing from us as it now controls and compels and really propels us forward. That's the Christian life. You see, the, the gospel didn't come into our lives just to make us into nicer people. Jesus came into our lives to save us and then to raise us from the dead. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So what has happened to us, if you're a believer in Jesus, what has happened to you is something huge. It's something monumental. It's something that should alter our lives permanently. And what the Bible says is that the Christian life is a supernatural life. And because it's a supernatural life, we have to have this kind of a supernatural empowering in order to live it. You may have heard it said, it's exactly right, that living the Christian life isn't just hard without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. 
We can't create the fruit of the Spirit. That's why it's called fruit, right? Because it just grows naturally. And the fruit of the Spirit grows naturally out of a life that is connected intimately with that life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. It's that life that Paul described again to the Galatians, where he said that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that what the Apostle Paul would see if he walked into your house right now and looked at your life this morning? Now, one of the dangers, I think, in, in asking this kind of question is that uh, the, the fact is that we all express our Christianity within whatever particular context that we find ourselves. For us, of course, we express our Christianity in the context of American Christianity. More specifically, within the context of the American Christian church. And in the American Christian church, we have been able to do whatever it is that we do, and we do it each and every week in the way that we want to do it right up until recently, huh? And yet what a gift it has been that the Lord has allowed that context to be so disrupted and to be shaken and to be rattled because what it's doing is it's forcing us to look at so much of what has been just the main expression of our Christian faith. And now to start to put our faith to an entirely different test in an entirely different context. And what I mean by this is that we can't simply be good Sunday morning Christians anymore because Sunday mornings aren't Sunday mornings right now the way that we're used to them being. Right? Isn't it awfully easy to see the fruit of the Spirit when you're standing around in the beautiful orchard of the local church? But now we need to be looking for that fruit of the Spirit in our lives amongst all of the weeds and the hardened soil of the world. And it's in that context now that we can allow this mirror of the Word of God to really, I think, talk to us honestly about who we are in the Christianity that we're living out each and every day. Right? The question to ask is, is the fullness of what was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross on my behalf, am I really living that out each and every day? And the answer for each one of us is probably not. But the good news is the Holy Spirit. The good news for us is that if, if you know this morning in the privacy of your own heart that your own Christian life, right? For any of us, if we're living so far below that Christian life that Jesus paid so much that we could enjoy, if we see any sense of an incompleteness in our lives, if we see something that the Apostle Paul would notice in us was lacking, right? In a, in a half hour conversation with us, it, that incompleteness can be taken care of completely this morning 
by a, a baptism or a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. See, it's like Jesus declared, he talked to his disciples in Luke chapter 11, and he said this. He says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? And if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So ask this morning. Say, Lord, I need more of this dunamis dynamic. I need more of this Holy Spirit within my life. And you're going to receive it simply by asking for it. Right? Just as surely and as simply as God promises salvation to the person who receives and believes in the Lord, so too he makes this same promise that we will receive the Holy Spirit when we ask in earnest for it. Even when we ask over and over and over again because we all leak. We all need that continuous. We need to constantly be refilled. We need to be replenished with this heavenly power. And if you're watching this morning and you're not yet a Christian, then this very kind of vibrant and victorious Christian life, it all starts for you with your salvation. It starts for you by putting your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, that his sacrifice pays the penalty for your sins. And when you do that, then the Holy Spirit comes into your life and now you become a son or a daughter of God. And now you see all of this fullness of the Holy Spirit that's all available to you as well, just like it was to this same small group of disciples who we see the Apostle Paul ministering and about whom we read this one more little interesting detail. Look finally, our last verse this morning in verse 7. It says, Now the men were about twelve in all. And I think it's kind of interesting that the Holy Spirit thought that it was necessary to specifically give us the number of this group of disciples. And in part, I think it's a reminder that not all of the entire church at Ephesus was suffering from this kind of a, an incomplete understanding of all that was available to them in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. At that time, frankly, this was probably just a small sliver of the total number of new believers there in that church. And most of them were probably embracing the Spirit and they were experiencing His power in their lives as such a necessary part of this new supernatural existence that they were living. And unfortunately today, 
within the Christian church, it's now more so exactly the opposite of that. Because there is a huge block of Christians in the world today who are not at all fully aware of, they're not at all fully instructed in the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they spend so much of their Christian lives trying to live out the Christian life without this dynamic and without this kind of power, all because the Holy Spirit continues to be the most misunderstood and the most neglected person within the Godhead. And what I mean by that is that most of us as Christians are very well instructed concerning God the Father, and that's wonderful, right? We are deeply instructed concerning God the Son, and of course that's critical, it's necessary for our salvation. And yet, as it relates to our success then in living out that life of Christ in the power of the Spirit, right, to truly be witnesses for him, I believe that the enemy has done his level best to keep this kind of teaching from God's people and to create all kinds of confusion and concern and maybe even some apprehension about it. Because where it is that what it is that we believe on this issue will determine very significantly the quality of the Christian life and the Christian witness that we each enjoy. Because without the power of the Holy Spirit, we get stuck. We get stuck somewhere between knowing what we're supposed to be doing and yet not having the power to do it. Right? So, you know, we know the condemnation, we know the, the moral duty of trying to be better, and yet the grace of Jesus and the help of the Holy Spirit, we don't know those things. And for people in that place, religion just inevitably becomes this thing of struggle. It isn't, it hasn't come to that place where it provides peace in their life. And what's, I think, so interesting about this is that that's not that much different than where God's chosen people, the Jews, find themselves currently as a nation. And in fact, I bring that up because some see in this specific reference to 12 men, right, as a representation of the 12 tribes, as a picture of the fact that this same saving fullness of the Spirit is what is yet to be experienced by Israel nationally. And yet, which they will, as we just saw in our, our reading this morning that David did, they will finally and fully come into that experience in the last days. So that's just a little prophetic tidbit for you guys to chew on um, this afternoon. So as we close, I have a feeling this morning that there may be some of you that feel like you're kind of stuck in a very similar place. Maybe you even do know the Lord. Maybe the Spirit is indeed within you, and yet you feel like as hard as you work to live a better life for Jesus, that it's just always too hard. But I just want to encourage all of us with just one more verse this morning 
And this was a verse written by a man who knew failure. He knew failure as a believer. He knew failure even as an apostle. Peter promises us in 2 Peter chapter 1, God's answer to this very frustration where Peter promises that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So always remember that Jesus didn't just save you, but through his power that we've been given this inexhaustible heavenly resource to really enable us to live out the things that we see that we're supposed to because all we're doing is simply allowing Jesus to live his life through us so you and I can live a life that brings glory to Jesus we can live a life that's a witness for him we can live a life that's fulfilling and that's satisfying and that's victorious and that's life-giving when we depend on the Holy Spirit and the supernatural power the supernatural ability that God has provided he hasn't left us unequipped But more often than not, the problem is that we are simply trusting. We are are striving and we are straining in our own ability instead of simply relying on his supernatural ability inside of us. Remember, true Christianity isn't about me living for Jesus. It's about really letting Jesus live through me. It's about more of the Spirit. It's about less of us. It's about Him having more influence and control over our lives. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for uh, the great encouragement that you give, Lord, that encouragement that living this life, Lord, is not about us. Lord, it's not about us trying harder to be better or to do more or or to please you lord but it's simply about us allowing you to have your way in us lord it's about us um, stop striving in our own strength uh, lord and simply allow your strength to take over and so father i pray for each one of us that you would help us to do that lord it is more easily said than done lord i pray that as we die to ourselves lord and as we live in that new resurrection life that you've provided lord that we would sense your presence we would sense your influence and we would sense you really taking the reins lord and we thank you lord and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound 
in your ear. Amen. Remember, uh, no gathering in the park tonight, uh, but this week, uh, stay healthy, uh, stay safe in, uh, in more ways than one. And we will see you back here Wednesday night for regroup and uh, hopefully Sunday uh, next week for service. Amen. God bless you guys.